Hi there, future of work enthusiast. I'm Yulia, the host of Skills for Mars, and I welcome you to a new episode of the podcast. So get yourself some coffee or tea and tune in to this inspiring conversation. For your information, there are more than 100 videos on various future of work topics, so check out all the playlists and podcast series. If there is a topic you'd like to see discussed and cannot find it here, leave a comment below and I will make sure to invite an expert to share their insights. I would also love to receive your feedback or any question you might have, so thanks to message me below. And finally, the best way to support this podcast is by subscribing to the Skills for Mars channel. I will know this is of value and will continue bringing amazing guests on the show. It is simple, just click on the red button. Enjoy today's talk. Hi, Mark, and welcome to Skills for Mars. I am very thrilled to finally be hosting you. We've been talking about this <laughs> for so you. long. It's a pleasure to be here. Mark, for everyone to get to know you a bit better, are you okay to just shortly introduce yourself and uh, what you're doing as a day-to-day job? Sure, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I'm training as a psychiatrist. Uh, so I'm a medical doctor. I'm just finishing up my, my training as a psychiatrist in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, I'm also doing a PhD in uh, kind of a crossover between environmental psychology, visual neuroscience, human performance, and uh, mental health and recovery. So it's a kind of a mixture of a whole bunch of different areas. I'm, I'm still trying to work out how to shorten the name of my project as I hear a lot of PhDs suffer the same problem. Uh, and yes, yeah, so I have an interest in space medicine um, and space psychology, psychiatry. So I've, I've been uh, with the Space Life Sciences Committee for our Aerospace Medicine Society for, I don't know, four or five years now and been part of our Humans in Space Space Medicine course. Uh, yeah, they're the main things I'm doing at the moment. So, so going back to your PhD, how do you combine them? Psychiatry with visual, neurology, human performance. What's the thesis about? What are you researching? Um, essentially, um, and this goes, this is the connection with the, the Mars stuff. Uh, so it's the environmental psychology of isolated environments or confined environments, um, in, in, in space, in the sort of space research area, they, they talk about ISIS, so isolated and confined environments, but it's essentially how you, you know, how do you get, um, someone to live well, um, how to get them to, um, maintain their mental health to perform in a very small environment. And that's about how you design the habitat. And that's really similar to other sorts of confined environments that people might live or work in. And a, a couple of, from healthcare uh, to good examples are um, dementia wards for the elderly um, or nursing homes when people's entire life is in a much smaller space and their mobility to leave is, is reduced and in mental health in psychiatry wards. So in, um, in, the, in the ward environment when uh, there are issues with your, um, with your decision-making uh, and so doctors have had to say you actually need to stay in, in the hospital for a period of time to recover, it can be quite um, distressing to be told that you can't leave and if you're going to have to stay in that environment to recover, you can have an environment that helps you recover or an environment that, um, 
makes it harder to recover. So, so my, my work is on how do we apply visual neuroscience uh, to improving that environment around you, um, whether it's performing in a space habitat or recovering in a hospital. Did the interest in psychiatry or in medicine in general raise the interest into uh, health in space, mental health in space, or the other way around? So which, which way did it go? Yes. Um, they kind of, so, so I guess I, I went into, so I started in doing with medical school and then I became interested in space medicine. Um, it was probably about, it was probably parallel because I've always been interested in space. I've always been a bit of a space nerd since I was a kid. Um, so as soon as I think it was near the end of medical, my medical degree that I started thinking about, oh, I wonder if there's space medicine. But, and at the same time, I was thinking I was already really interested in mental health. So and it's like, oh, well, if there's space medicine, there must be space psychology and psychiatry. Um, so it was, it was a bit of a two parallel paths at the, at the same time. You are a small group of people that's interested in that and is doing research. Yeah, there's, um, I mean, I mean, there's, there's I mean, you know, around the world, there's quite a lot. Uh, there's certainly not many in Australia, that's for sure. <laughs> That's <laughs> <laughs> but I mean both the you know the the Russians probably were the first um, to start the field because they were the first to have uh, long duration um, space stations uh, and then NASA caught on fairly quickly after them and yeah but they've they've both been going for 50, 50 plus years they've had this field moving. And I think the Russians had the longest experiment right keeping people in confined spaces. Like they had the 500 days uh, confinement. Yeah, that's right. The Mars 500 study. Yes. Um, yeah. That, yeah. No. That, yeah. You're right. That is. That's definitely the longest one that I that I know of. Um, the only other really long experiments I can think of is the Biosphere Two project, but I think there was a break in the middle there, so I'm I'm not sure that that was, and that was less related to space um, back then. Yeah, they are very interesting. And I was just talking last week, I had a um, recording and it will be out soon with someone in the US, but who went, Munir, Munir, I've, I've introduced you. Um, but he oh, was yeah, only yeah. on a 45 days um, uh, simulated mission. Oh, only. fantastic. Um, I'll be interested to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that's still life-changing, even if it is only 45 days and that the actual eff effects of confinement uh, you can see them immediately. They were not allowed to talk with uh, their family only once a week for 30 minutes. So that really, that really influenced uh, their mental health. Yeah, that, yeah, that would. Uh, as, a, as, a, as a dad with a small child, I just imagining such a small amount of contact, that would have a massive effect on me. <laughs> <laughs> so Mark, going to, to um, spaces we live in, and uh, the environment that we build around us. How exactly do we connect it to mental health, performance, team cohesion? Yeah, um, I, I guess it, it stems from the concepts that environmental psychology is built around. And that's that, you know, I'm not a, a person with a brain um, in a room, right? Actually, the it's an interactional relationship between the environment around me and how I am right now. So the simplest example is the chair I'm sitting in was built for a human. So 
it was built to a certain width and depth so that a you know a human bum can sit on it and then you know that I'll be at a, the right level so that I can see my computer so that all that ergonomic stuff um, but it actually goes deeper than that um, one of the one of my mentors um, ran a study for NASA uh, back in 1988 uh, and they had people doing um, sort of cognitive tests sitting at a table and they just had a, a, a picture in front of them um, on the wall and the picture there was it was a an abstract picture there was a um, there was a sort of a, a deep forest scene and there was like a savannah type kind of rolling hills picture and so you would do you'd have just have this static picture on the wall and you do cognitive tests and rest and cognitive tests and rest and what they found is just by having a different picture on the wall in front of you, um, they found uh, significant differences in how well people did at their cognitive tests. And what that, what that means is that purely by having a certain type of picture in front of you, your cognitive abilities are, are changed. Oh, how does uh, that happen? So, the, the, I mean, it's definitely, it's very much still an area of research. That's one of the foundations of the work we're doing uh, but the one of the main theories around it is called the savannah hypothesis which is that humans evolved in you know the african savannah uh, and there are qualities to the visual landscape that um, our brain has evolved to spot predators and find food um, we're most adapted we're most compatible with that sort of visual environment and so the, the more similar to that environment that your environment is, uh, the less processing, the, the, the less stress it puts on your, your brain to process where you are. So if you, if you imagine uh, a simple example is if you look at um, science fiction when they put people into space habitats or Mars transit vehicles, they're always these of big nice spaces with lots of chairs and you know very big displays it's all easy to see everything it's nice and just aesthetically pleasing enough to oh, I, I could spend some time in there but then if you compare it to the international space station it's a very confusing very hard to orient yourself in there and so just moving around finding what you're trying to do um, generates a lot more physical stress on the body because your brain is still always constantly trying to go, wait, which way was up and which way did that thing and that thing looked like this, but it's hidden behind, you know, wires and other things. Yeah, and you have to stick everything to a wall. But is the, is the stress influencing the cognitive performance or there's no mediating relationship? Uh, it's, that, I, can't, I can't say definitely yes or no. Um, the evidence would point to it is having an impact um, on if I guess I guess there's a question of what are you talking about in terms of performance? Like if I, you know, for instance, astronauts obviously do their jobs very, very well in that environment. I mean, they train in that environment to reduce how much it impacts on them. Um, they're generally very high functioning people. And I mean, if you put me in that environment today and told me to do a task, I, I you know, depending on what the task was, there's a good chance I'd be able to do it. But when if you then actually go and measure, well, how quickly did I do it? How accurately did I do it? Um, your environment will actually mediate 
how well you achieve your um, whatever you're trying to do. When was this discovered? When was this research first? Do you have any idea around not the um, I guess it's a question of which part of, of it. I mean, environmental psychology as a, as a field has been around for, for decades okay. um, as, a, as, a, as a broad field. But it's, it's still quite very much in, in, in its infancy because um, our understanding of, I mean, as with most things with the brain, our ability to measure is not very accurate. You know, we've got fMRI, which is still pretty pretty blunt resolution sort of imaging of, of how the brain works. You can't really see anything on a circuitry level. Uh, but, I mean, sort of the neurological sciences on, you know, on the human brain and especially looking in space has been going on for, uh, for, for yeah, for decades. Um, at is very this least has been around when the open office was invented? Why I'm wondering is that... If we knew all of this, why did we build those ugly offices <laughs> we work in? And uh, if you're thinking about uh, even uh, yeah, uh, ex-communist or communist countries, the kind of buildings you live in and the kind of uh, homes you have and how they're really like Lego, very simple, nothing to do with any savanna or anything. Mm. It just feels like most of them that you're trapped. Yeah, the, um, look, I think I think you can look. It, it's relatively new as a science. Uh, I think that's that's very much for sure. And I think you can see these experiments that people have done because they, you know, and we've learned a lot from them. Which is why I guess in the last decade or two, things are it's become more cohesive, probably as as a field. Um, yeah, like the open plan office. Uh, as you said, you know, it's, oh, that's fantastic. We'll be able to, we'll be able to exchange ideas. And then, you know, when I've worked in an open plan office, I'll constantly have my headphones in. So people think I'm listening to music just so I can actually focus and not get interrupted all the time. Um, yeah, there's some, yeah. And I guess, I guess there's that sort of trial and error process that's constantly happening and still, because this is still such an, it's such a new field. Uh, and, you know, even, even, Understanding that that experiment with the with the paintings uh, with with, well, with the, the pictures and that was in 1988 and the research we're doing now is investigating one hypothesis which we think is related to why that happens. Um, but I'm curious yeah, there's, what there's what's no that uh, what's the hypothesis you're testing right now and um... so um, it's basically that the the so we're adapted to the natural world, to being outside. If you look at all these studies, they show that um, if you spend time in, in a garden, uh, if, you have, uh, plant, if you just have simple potted plants outside your house, your physical stress levels are lower. And in fitting with these, um, in, in fitting with these studies of, um, of stress, we're saying, well, okay, well, what is it about the natural world that, um, that works so well for, for the human body. And it's, it's again, it's this compatibility idea that the brain is more, more, uh, more compatible with seeing those sorts of environments than what we call Euclidean environments. So you can see behind me that, you know, most places we build are all, you know, straight lines and squares and uh, which seem really simple, but actually the way the brain works is different. Uh, it, it works on fractals. 
Mm-hmm. Um, fractals being that you have the same shape in um, sort of at different magnifications all through. Um, so, so if you look at a tree, you've got you know the, the main trunk, and then you've got the little branches and the little branches and the little branches, which means that your brain can predict what it, if you get closer your brain can predict what it's going to see before it gets there. Um, It's intuitive to the brain, but fractals are not so intuitive to our conscious minds. Uh, And so this is, there was a whole area of research that said, oh, well, maybe the brain is wired for fractal geometry. And so we're trying to see, well, can we take images that are based on that and see if people do better with them uh, compared to, you know, that's, that's why they think the, people looking at the abstract image didn't really do very well. Um, and then the people looking at that Savannah um, did better. But, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see if we get good results or not. And I'm curious because you, you said and you mentioned twice that people do well and they have lower stress level. How much lower? Is it like 1%, 2%? Is it 30%? How much lower are we talking about? Um, it's not really something I can put a percentage on. Um, you can measure stress hormones mm-hmm. and you can say, oh, the hormone levels are lower. You can do um, galvanic, uh, galvanic stress testing um, on, you know, sort of skin conductance. You can say, oh, it's lower. Or you can look at cognitive performance. So it, these are all sort of secondary measures. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard to say what the experience of stress is, but you can say, well, there's all these signs of stress that we can see getting lower. Um, or performance that are getting better. So, so how is that stress influencing us? We just perform. We have lower performance levels. We get tired easier. What is that kind of stress doing to us? And not only to us, but maybe to the people around us as well. Hmm. Uh, it can do a range of things. Uh, I mean, if you think about if you're if you're tired, everything gets a bit harder. Uh, and it's, it's the same idea that um, when, we, uh, when we talk about stress, we're talking about, a f- I guess, a f- it's a very big, it's a big word that encompasses a lot of things. You know, there's the, well, how tired are you? How, how sort of switched on is, is your um, ability to focus and analyse? How much emotional resilience do you have? I'm sure most people had the experience of being too tired and being in a conversation where there was a lot of emotional need and it's like, I don't have the, I don't have the energy for this. So there's, you know, the impact on sort of say analyzing results like, like work. And then there's the impact on social skills uh, and then impact on your own well-being, your own uh, feeling that you're feeling of calm and feeling of being able to endure whatever you're, whatever you're doing. So in, in going back to your original question, um, the relationship to mental health is that we're hoping that if you've got someone who's sick, whether it be mental health or, um, or uh, you know, say with dementia in the, in the elderly, there's a strong connection between stress and, and dementia symptoms being worse, uh, that if you put them in, in an environment that's uh, more adapted for them, more more ergonomic, that they'll recover faster, uh, that they might get out of hospitals sooner, you know, cost less, uh, less health resources. 
Um, the, a really good example of the opposite side is that in intensive care units, um, if you've ever been in an intensive care unit, it's white walls, it's, um, it's white walls, it's very bright, it's not a pleasant environment to be in. You know, it's white sheets and wires and tubes everywhere and loud and there's beeping from machines everywhere. It shouts and danger. Sorry? It shouts danger. Yeah. I, it, it that's how I feel like I shouldn't be here. I really shouldn't be here. That's that's the feeling that you get when you when you're in an IC. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so there's a very well known in medicine. We talk about ICU delirium. So if you have a patient who's in there too long, they actually their mental function goes off um, purely just from by being in that environment. I mean, often they're they're sick as well, but that environment is well known for exacerbating whatever's going on. So, yeah, I guess that's the mental health connection. Uh, and then the performance connection is that there's a, there's a great thesis on Mars travel, uh, Mars space travel by Elizabeth Lockhart uh, quite a while ago. And she talked about moving from survival to performance to habitation. So if you think about, you know, the... The first, um, the first Soyuz or the, the Mercury rockets and, you know, you could put a person in this tiny little capsule and keep them alive, they could survive. Uh, but then they had to learn how to actually stay in space and work. So you had to have bigger spaces, so like the Apollo missions where you have more space to, or, or space stations where you've got, uh, you can actually do your job. You, you can actually not just be alive, but um, actually be productive um, in, in some of the first Russian space, one of the first Russian space stations, one of the Salyut stations, there was a mission where by the end, the cosmonauts were only getting two or three hours of work done per day um, by the end of the mission. And this is before they started thinking about the psychology because the environment had was so stressful um, and the experience was so, the, the environment and the experience, everything together um, impacted on their performance so, so intensely. So when you start thinking about going to Mars length, you've got to start thinking of not just performance but also habitation because you've got to perform but on this scale of, you know, which is so much longer. I always wonder because we, I, I talk about all these studies that are actually done with humans, right, for, for going to space, 500 days, 300 days and so on. Is this reversible if they, if they get any sort of mental issues, performance issues, are they there to stay? Is it like, can you get like PTSD kind of um, um, issues or is it reversible? It's not easy what they go through. No, not, a, not at all. Um, and, and when they go to Mars, it'll be uh, an order of magnitude more. Uh, the answer to that is both a positive and a negative. Mm -hmm. um, well, well the, the answer is that any, any experience can be traumatic. But also, on the other side of it, there's a whole area of research called salutogenesis, which is basically that difficult experiences, by overcoming them, we actually become stronger and get better. Uh, so, you know, you could go into an analog environment and have an awful time for whatever reasons and say people, you know, uh, with the Antarctic um, expeditions, you might spend a winter in the Antarctic and for whatever reasons hate the experience 
and for years dwell on how awful that was. It's possible. Most people enjoy it more so, but, you know, it is possible for it to be a traumatic experience. But then there's also a lot of people that will go and do something really hard and at the time being, oh, this is so difficult, and then afterwards have that, um, that strength of, wow, I overcame that and actually gained from it. And I think that's actually probably more, uh, more common reaction. In fact, I'd say it's good to hear. definitely more common than trauma. <laughs> that is good to hear. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was always like, are we really doing this with humans? I mean, we, we kind of have to, but uh, it just feels like uh, it's not easy. So, uh, yes. How, how does space and uh, especially locked space affect maybe a family or even uh, working in a team? If we're talking about families right right now, what's happening, working from home and really making sure that um, yeah, everyone has the right uh, performance, everyone can do their work. But in space, it's the same, right? You're same, confined in even a smaller place. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you think about it, if you're on the space station, you can't say, I'm, I'm tired of this, I'm going out for a run. <laughs> you can't really go outside. Uh, it's, it's actually, look, there, there are a lot of similarities, um, which, you know, I, I think I, during, this, during the pandemic, I actually went from, uh, you know, looking at this very niche area of uh, space medicine and Suddenly, I end up um, writing a paper with some colleagues about uh, surviving uh, surviving COVID isolation. Uh, I think I mentioned to you that here in Melbourne, we just had 112 days of um, near complete lockdown. Uh, and working in mental health has been very interesting to see how that's affecting people. But everything you're saying is so right. So you have, you know, you have the family where the parents usually would go to work and the kids would go to school, and now suddenly you have. The kids trying to do school in, in their bedrooms, say, and then dad trying to do his job at the kitchen counter and mom sitting at the, at the, at the dining room table. And it's, it's, you know, it becomes just a, you know, the, the intensity of how everyone is impacting on everyone else's, what everyone's trying to do. It just it can bounce off each other and become really problematic if you don't, if you don't have the space for it or uh, if, if the, those relationships are already tense. I think I saw some research that in China, after the first lockdown, they had this huge spike in divorces. Um, I'd have to look that up. I, I, it might I've heard that you're not the first person that, uh, that says that. So someone else looked it up as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm not sure if it was a discussion with Cheryl or, or uh, someone else. But, yeah, apparently the, the, the rate of divorce went uh, was sky high. But I understood it's also very easy to get divorced and get married. Uh, okay, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> uh, but I guess from, I mean, as a, as a clinician, it makes sense to me because, you know, we, there are the people we, even, even, in, even in marriages, um, you know, we don't, we're not perfectly aligned all the time. You know, um, a, a very good psychotherapist mentor of mine said that we're only on the same page. Married couples are only on the same page 40% of the time and on, on average. Yeah. And, oh, interesting. Well, and, you know, you, everyone needs their own time to do their own thing. You don't want to be, you know, working together and in the same room all the time. Like you need time to do your own thing. And so if families have worked out their way of managing in, say, the coronavirus, oh, sorry, in, in normal life, like, oh, but, you know, when life at home gets a bit 
busy, at least I'm going to work and I'm doing something different. If now you're trying to do work at home, those ways you've, had, you've built up of coping, of managing your relationship can, can be exposed to too much stress. Yeah, for sure. No wonder that uh, family conflict uh, increased, uh, drinking increased, obesity. Is, uh... Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, all, it's all increased. Tell me a bit, what can we do? You were talking about dementia in nursing homes and ICUs, and we have quite a lot of people in ICUs right now. Is there something you can do in those spaces to make it easier for them to reduce the stress, maybe lower uh, dementia rates or recovery rates, and even speed up uh, ICU recovery rates? Are hospitals somewhere using any of this research to just make it better for their patients? Yeah, if, if you look at, well, I mean, uh, if you look at uh, hospitals that are being designed now, compared to hospitals that were designed, you know, even 10, 20 years ago, um, you can start to see, you can see the differences in some of the design choices that are, you know, the way the architecture has actually evolved, the built environment along a lot of these ideas. Um, you know, having, not just having sterile white halls, but having arts or having different, um, you know, we've, uh, one of the big things in both space and uh, in in any confined environment is visual novelty. You know, if you're always looking at the same space, that that thing you're looking at gets old. It gets you get sick of looking at that same thing. And there's something about that that's not good for your brain. So in designing hospitals, they bring more color. They bring they try to make it warmer, feel feel like it's a more um, it's environment built for people rather than you're sort of you know in the middle of a white room you know, with metal and things that, you know, are really uncomfortable. Um, so th there's a lot of the, the hospital design side is a big one. In terms of thinking about, so, you know, people in ICUs, anything that keeps, that makes the environment more hospitable um, is helpful. And that, you know, and that goes across, you know, all five senses. So, you know, it might be music. Uh, you know, playing, you know, having, e when possible, having earphones playing some soft music that's going to be nicer than the beeps of machines. Or, um, you know, as I was talking about before, visuals, you know, if you, the hard thing is in an intensive care unit, you don't want to get in the way of the actual medicine being done. So it's a, it's a very, it's a hard balancing act of what can I do, but also allow the actual health care that's the main thing that's going to help this person recover. But whether they're, you know, putting, when I walk into a patient's room where they have photos of loved ones or grandchildren's drawings on the wall, um, it almost always makes me think that this person has adapted the environment around them to be more recovery focused, more helpful. Um, and then simple things like texture, um, having, you know, hospital sheets, if you have the you know, hospital sheets are not exactly that comfortable, but having, you know, things just to, you know, just to run your hands along might be helpful. And um, hospital food versus bringing in home cooked food. You know, all engage. The more you engage those senses, and the more that you um, make the environment less um, less the same and less stressful. I mean, you have to be careful as well if you brought in. You know, blinds and food and music and you got in the way of the staff and then you got into conflict with the staff, it's probably not going to be helpful for the person yeah. who's in the middle. 
but, you know, so it's obviously a balance, but any, any of those sorts of things that make the environment more homely and engage the person's senses in ways they haven't been for a long time will be helpful. Did anyone do any kind of research with VR? With VR? Yes. And yeah, just having a headset on, not changing the actual room, but just uh, having patients with a headset on so they can get that. Uh, I don't know if that would lead to more mental health issues or not. No, I've, I actually saw a fantastic photo of, um, so I was in a nursing, I was working with people in a nursing home. It was already a couple of years ago now, and they had a VR lounge. So they had a, a lounge with chairs along the sides and VR helmets for, for the elderly people who live there. And the idea is that you can put it on and you can visit a place that you're not going to be able to get to. And I, I have heard of studies in the elderly population that showed um, improved sort of the subjective experience of well-being um, you, there's, I mean, in the professional field, there's lots of VR research going on. Um, you know, groups of people on, uh, say, just for, I mean, there's, there's a study going on in the Australian Antarctic. Uh, there's been talk of putting, you know, people who are on oil rigs for long, long shifts. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, again, that sort of being able to escape the environment that you're in for a while. Yeah, there's tons of VR stuff. Cool. <laughs> Because cool. <laughs> I always thought that maybe VR isn't there yet, and they they are right. You can still pick, see pixelated images, uh, and also there's all this shouting uh, that uh, maybe it's not so good that it keeps people focused. And there you get them out of the real world and put them in a fantasy world. And if that goes on for too long, that that might affect them. But I guess that if you do it in a balanced way, yeah, I think. Um I think if you do anything too much, it's obviously not going to be helpful. Um, I know VR has revolutionized um, pilot training. Um, there's one area already it's been it's made a massive, massive difference. Um, and astronaut training as well. The, the astronauts, you know, years ago, they used to have these custom-built kind of VR headsets, and now they use the same ones you can buy for, you know, $100 uh, at your local tech shop. Um, the potential you use technology like that for training is immense. Uh, and, and the ability to get um, a tactile experience of, uh, of, of whatever you're doing. Uh, there, was a, there was an Australian group that worked with NASA and made a, um, an ISS simulation mm-hmm. um, where, you know, you're, you're an astronaut in the, in the airlock and then you go outside. Uh, and it, it, was, it was amazing how... Um, even though you know it's not real, the emotional experience of, of you know, turning around and seeing the earth below you. Um, a whole lot of people that I did with, it was, it was you know, you're just sitting in a chair just with your VR thing to the chair being a simulation of zero gravity. But it's, it's a powerful experience and a, and a physical and motor learning experience. Technology is amazing. Mark, help me. How do we survive this second lockdown that's happening in Europe. You've just been out of a hundred and something days. Bars just have just opened today. So for Australia, this is yay, hooray. But here there's talk about, right, um, already bars and uh, cafes and the restaurants are closed. So you can only have takeaway. This is happening for the second time. We're in the second week. And there's huge talk about the second lockdown. 
And honestly, I think that me as well and everyone else, we it's just it's just too much, and we're mm-hmm. stuck in uh, four walls, and it's getting harder and harder. And I have my partner with me, and we work together, so I can't really complain. I feel like I shouldn't complain, but it's not easy. Anything that we can do for our habitats, anything that we can do relieve a bit of distress and still focus on what's important. Yeah, there's there's lots of things. Um, yeah, actually, I actually wrote a a short paper with Cheryl um, for an Australian um, for an Australian medical magazine. I, I can send you the link. Yes, perfect. Um, I can link I, it. And and the the idea was um, strategies that are for for the everyday person going through this, um, but. A lot of which, a lot of the data we took from, we used for that, we took from uh, lessons for astronauts. Uh, so the simplest things are building routine into your life. You know, your brain's circadian rhythm, your sleep-wake cycle is so important for keeping depression away. Um, in the in the Mars five hundred study, that, and you talked about one of the pa- one of the patients, one of the. Uh, the analog astronauts actually ended up getting depressive symptoms. And I think two of them switched their day-night cycle because over time it just got to them. That was 500 days and we just did 112. So I think you'll be, I think, you know, everyone in Holland will be okay. Uh, but simple things like keeping that routine, so having a relatively routine bedtime, um, re- regular exercise, making sure you're sort of keeping your body um, moving, um, feeding it well, um, having a, and then having a mix of goal directed behaviors. So things, you know, projects that you're interested in or work or sort of personal projects and then non goal directed stuff. So I'm just going to binge watch Netflix or play a computer game or, um, you know, work on, you know, play, work on that song on, on a, on my guitar or that sort of thing. So having that balance of all of those different activities um, and then keeping the environment around you um, as varied as possible. So we talked a lot about telling people to just open up you open up the curtains if you're used to having the curtains closed or open the windows so even though you're inside and the air is quite still, if you have the windows open, the wind comes through, the feeling of the wind on your skin. Um, I know... Scott Kelly, when he came back from his year on the International Space Station, he said feeling the wind on his face was the most profound experience because he hadn't felt wind in a year. Um, And funnily enough, moving around furniture. So um, changing the way that your your living environment is set up, Um, you know, putting up, moving art around or moving, you know, let's put the bed this way for a few weeks and then, because um, it keeps the environment around you interesting. For for sure. Now I know I'm, I'm maybe maybe pushing this too far. What's happening when all of that is done? So I had friends, and uh, so we we just moved furniture around, right? So still mm-hmm. not uh, still not yeah not over that uh, yet. But uh, I, I was speaking to a friend on the phone when this happened, and she said, "Yeah, I've moved it ten times already. I live alone in my house. I cannot get out." <laughs> And then that's really hard. So it's really hard, especially people who are living on their own. Um, that's another. I mean, if there's conflict between two people, that makes it really bad. But being on your own and not being able to see people is incredibly difficult. 
Um, we had people here in Melbourne who would have like a an isolation buddy. So it was like, I'm, I'm allowed to go out and visit this one person. Um, That's good. Now I think of it, I'm not sure it was actually legal. Okay. <laughs> um, in, the, in the early days. Uh, but I know all about the people who said, look, that's the one person I'm going to see and it's safe for us. We know that we're the only other person we each other are seeing. Um, and they did that because otherwise they just felt like they couldn't cope. Yeah. Here um, you were allowed to have a sex body. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that, uh, that, that keeps it all a bit different. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think, I think you're, I think here as well, you were allowed, you were allowed to date, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, they actually called it the sex body. So, hey, you're alone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just pick up one person and uh, for the whole lockdown. <laughs> and you're, you're allowed to have that body. You're, allow you're allowed to have that body, exactly, and to visit that person. <laughs> that was in the initial initial uh, stages. Now there's no talk about that, I guess. Yeah, now you can have uh, three people visiting extra from uh, whoever you have at home. Okay. <laughs> Is there uh, the something? Thing... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, the, when it starts to get, the longer it goes on, the harder it gets. And the less any, anything that you're doing um, is going to become less effective um, the longer you're doing. You know, I've moved the furniture once, twice, five, ten times. But the more different things that you're doing, so you're moving around the furniture and you're changing the art and you're watching different TV shows and sometimes reading a book instead of watching a TV show. The more different things you're doing, um, it makes it is helpful. The other thing that uh, that seems to be really has been really helpful is um, social activities, like building new social activities, um, playing, you know, having a group of people to play charades over Zoom call, or um, I know online gaming has gone skyrocketing because. Um, I've got, I've been a gamer for my whole life, but um, most of my friends were not, most of my good friends here, but a whole bunch of them for the first time, you know, it was sort of engaged because it's a way of sharing social experiences and you, you project yourself into something like Minecraft, like a really simple looking game, but you're projecting yourself out of your static home into this world and you can all do things together and have experiences together. Um, Plus yeah, share so a laugh, thinking, right? Yeah. Sorry? Plus share some laughter and some uh, jokes maybe audio-wise ver versus just visual-wise. Yeah, I'm a exactly. gamer as well, so it helps. You so you understand. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And is there something we can do to make our home office space a bit better as a habitat? Right, not necessarily, yeah, for sure, it, maybe it will involve some of moving furniture and so on. Like this uh, Savannah, Savannah hypothesis that, you, that we were just talking about, uh, would it help to have a, a green poster somewhere? Would it have to help a green, what, is it green mostly? Is it fractals? Is it what would help the environment and make it a bit less stressful? There's, there's no one answer mm -hmm. to that because there's so many different things uh, you can try. Um, the with the fractal thing, the, the importance is when most of us think of fractals, we think of what's called exact fractals. That's those psychedelic 1960s pictures that, yeah, those are exact fractals and they can actually be unpleasant. Uh, they can okay. be too intense. 
Um, uh, I mean, it depends on, you know, everyone's aesthetic experience is a bit different. So what when we're doing this research and we say, well, there's like the really the really thick fractals and the really thin fractals, like, you know, the really simple ones and the really complex ones, and it's this range in the middle that seems to be the most um, pleasing for the brain. Um, but then artistic people, it tends to be a bit higher. They tend to like a bit more complexity. And some people will like it a bit lower. So there's, yeah. You so, have to try it around. Uh, I mean, the simplest answer is you find something that is aesthetically pleasing for you. Um, you go back to aesthetics and you, know, you find art. And do I like, you know, the art that I like, you might not like. Mm -hmm. uh, so the most important thing is, thing, is finding something that looks um, pleasing to you. Um, certainly nature is a pretty, like more often than not, uh, nature is something that is pleasing in some way. Um, so certainly putting, bringing nature into the home, um, look, having potted plants, indoor plants, um, pictures, um, is going to be helpful. Um, even abstract art is also, is, is, it can also be great. There's, there was a study in hospitals that showed that people definitely preferred na natural scenes and landscapes to uh, to abstract art. But in the end, every person is different. So the when you're thinking of improving your office space, I guess, images, potted plants, um, reducing the clutter. If you have a very cluttered space, it actually impacts on your ability to do your job. Um, you know, there was a, there was a study of um, nursing stations in hospitals. So it's the, the desk area where the nurses do their work. And just by, they studied how often they made errors in, you know, in medication, giving medication to patients and writing in files. And then they made the desk bigger and they, they improved the lighting. And the amount of errors dropped because suddenly it was, you know, there was less stress in trying to find a little, you know, in, in hospitals, usually it's, uh, you know, this much desk space for 10 people trying to use it and kind of rotating through. So you're often on a corner trying to write something and that's stressful. So you're more likely to make mistakes um, and find that unpleasant. So if you have a, a desk space, which is open, which is, you know, you feel like you feel comfortable there, it's, it's uh, you know, a comfortable chair, all those sorts of things. I know they sound like just such simple things. They, they are but, simple, but no one has them still, right? So so yeah. it's good to find out from you. And I've honestly learned so much of in, uh, in this discussion, right? They seem very simple, but we often don't think about the simple uh, solutions. We often go uh, for the complex uh, stuff. And I think we write off that, oh, it'd be nice to have a big desk, but, you know, if, if I've got a corner of desk, that'll be fine. I can obviously get my work done, but when you actually start thinking about the science behind why, you know, why we work better at a bigger desk with better lighting and you know, more comfortable in a more comfortable chair, there's actually science to it that it allows your brain isn't trying to think about the chair that's really niggling you in the back mm -hmm. while trying to do your work. Your, your mind is freed from that and able to focus more completely on what you're doing. Yeah. A bit of cognitive ergonomics, right? Yeah, that's it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, thank you so much for today. I really feel like I've learned a lot and uh, I, th I thank you for that. And I think uh, the audience will uh, have the same feeling. Any last uh, thoughts? Any maybe things that I didn't ask you and you wanted to say? Look, for, for all the 
coping with with COVID isolation, I think thinking of it like a marathon is really helpful. Um, I'm sure I'm far from the first person to say this, but from a psychological point of view, it's uh, it, it's not about sort of going hard. It's about how am I going to survive the long term, putting things in place well before you're going to need them if possible, building social relationships, building up that group of friends that meet on Zoom once a week for, for that activity or um, those sorts of things are really important. Uh, and then I guess when, when it comes to Mars uh, and, and the same thing, I mean, there are lots of challenges and, you know, the technology and the psychology but the best example is in the late 1800s, uh, polar exploration. Uh, you know, you had a, a ship full of people trying to last, you know, they went away for years in incredibly depriving conditions and they survived. Well, so there were many people that did survive those experiences and that's actually not too far off what going to Mars would be like in some ways. So, yeah, it's all possible. But no, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. The pleasure was all mine. And uh, I'm looking right now uh, into this whole selection thing for uh, for Mars. Right? Yep. And I've seen another university being opened up uh, as well for studies, which is very interesting. This was uh -huh. uh, after the Mars Society uh, conference. Right, so oh, I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, oh, I, will send you, I, will, I can send you an email uh, and share that with you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Um, it, it gives us that uh, common uh, purpose, long time common purpose, where hopefully we can uh, all go with in one direction, no matter the yeah. nation, the race, the whatever kind of discrepancies we might find uh, between us. Agreed, agreed. And, and what, I, what I'm also excited about is, um, well, I guess one of the things that motivates me about all the space stuff is that there's amazing things we can do together, but then the things we can discover, whether it's technology or medicine or psychology and then bring it and apply it back home in you know the lessons we've learned from as awful as COVID has been the lessons we'll learn from COVID are just immense and how it's going to impact on healthcare in the future so so there's always a silver lining <laughs> always <laughs> Mark thank you so much